I'm Janet Forrest, and this is the Nantucket Athenaeum Podcast. In this season of the podcast, my colleague James Greeter and I are going to take you on a journey through time. You'll find out about the faces and frivolities that graced, or maybe disgraced, the stage of the Great Hall. You'll meet musicians, lecturers, and illusionists, some of repute and some, well, not. Who were these folks that made the long 30-mile trek to Nantucket, and how were they received by the islanders? Welcome to Tonight in Athenaeum Hall. This is Episode 5, Henry Clapp Jr., Part 1. This is an excerpt of a critique that appeared in the Inquiring Mirror on Saturday, December 18, 1841. The lecture on Thursday evening last was by Henry Clapp, Jr. Esquire, subject, The True Aim of Life. The lecturer was brilliant, witty, imaginative, the style ornamented and antithetical, but it struck us that it was not sufficiently discriminating. Everything and everybody were lashed and nobody praised. Schools, colleges, churches, society, everything is wrong. Nothing is good. Exceptions were given as correct exponents of the whole, and we are convinced that anyone who, carried away by the brilliancy of the lecturer, should adopt all his opinions would at least imbibe as much error as truth. James, today we are going to talk about a very interesting fellow named Henry Clapp Jr. Where should we begin? Well, I think we should begin with his father, because I think his father played a really important role in inspiring his son through his love of learning and writing and also social causes. Henry Clapp Sr. was born in 1783 in Connecticut. He was a bookbinder by trade and moved to Nantucket in 1809 to set up shop. Have you ever seen the famous Maybe you've seen it in pictures and things or on reproductions. The famous 1834 map of Nantucket drawn by William Coffin. That was published by Henry Clapp Sr. His son, Henry Clapp Jr., who I'll refer to now as just Henry Clapp, he was born in 1814, the product of his second marriage to Rebecca Coffin from Nantucket. Clapp was born a twin. His sister's name was also Rebecca. She would go on to become a teacher at the Nantucket Coffin School and eventually married Augustus Morse, who was later the principal of Nantucket High School. When Henry Clapp was 15, he went to sea on the training ship Clio, along with 17 other local boys. The Clio was a training ship that had recently been purchased by Sir Isaac Coffin, who founded the Coffin School as a training ship for the school. Assisted by four experienced seamen and a cook, uh, under the command of Lieutenant A.B. Pinkham, they went to Quebec and the Gulf of St. Lawrence, But according to a report in the Boston Bulletin, uh, the vessel experienced a lot of rough weather in the course of the voyage and Clapp was very sick the whole time, never found his sea legs and quickly determined that the sailor's life was not for him, although it did inspire a humorous article that he wrote decades later for the INM titled A Nautical Story. It took him a few years to discover his calling. He moves around a lot. In 1838, Clapp partnered with a man by the name of Jones to operate as commission merchants, first in New Bedford, then in Boston. But by August of 1839, the partnership had been dissolved and Clapp moved moved on to selling whale oil. That didn't last long either. In November of 1840, he had moved to New Orleans, where he formed yet another short-lived partnership with local merchants. 
After a year in New Orleans, Clapp returned to Nantucket and gave a lecture at the Athenaeum in December of 1841 titled The True Aim of Life. There was a review of this lecture in the INM. The INM said the lecturer was brilliant, witty, and imaginative, but not sufficiently discriminating. Everything and everybody were lashed and nobody praised. Schools, colleges, churches, society, everything is wrong, nothing good. This is a kind of acerbic kind of approach to writing, a very sarcastic tone that Clapp was known for throughout his life, and he apparently developed it fairly early on, and it would come back to haunt him. In 1843, Clapp was working as a copyist here on Nantucket. People would bring in legal documents, and he would literally transcribe them and make additional copies for you know, other purposes. But that didn't mean that he was not involved with current affairs nationally. He next appears in Boston as part of a raging public debate over social reform. A man by the name of Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was a Unitarian minister and abolitionist, who would go on to fund John Brown financially as part of the Secret Six, he wrote about hearing Clapp, who he described as a young radical mechanic, speak at this debate in 1843. And he said that that speech did more than anything else to make him at least halfway socialist for life. Clapp continued to take part in anti-slavery conventions as well, often sharing the stage with eminent figures like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. Clapp moves away from Nantucket. He can't stay still. He surfaces in Lynn, Mass., which was then a booming manufacturing and textile hub with a liberal reputation. Uh, Frederick Douglass had recently chosen to settle there. It was seen as a very progressive city at the time. Clapp got a job as the editor of the Essex County Washingtonian, which was a periodical championing total abstinence from alcohol. It was kind of a recent offshoot of the broader temperance movement, whereas earlier proponents were more like social reformers associated with churches. Washingtonians were former alcoholics themselves who sought to use other former alcoholics to spread the message to reach current ones. We actually talked about this in a previous episode when we were talking about the sheep shearing. And it wasn't the Washingtonians, reminds the Washingtonians came to the island to have a parade. Yes, they led the, what was called the Cold Water Army, which was a group of school children who'd made the abstinence pledge. And they had a, they had a tent revival during the sheep shearing festival. It was a really, really big deal. The 19th century, apparently in America, there was a real drinking problem. It increased substantially from the 18th century. And as it often does, went hand in hand with domestic violence. So the temperance movement was also an anti-violence movement in some ways, because it sought to curtail the abuses of alcohol in the home. So Clapp takes over this organ of this, essentially it's like a newsletter for the Washingtonians in Essex County, and convinces the owner, Christopher Robinson, who was a progressive shoe manufacturer. I know that might sound weird, but he operated his factory on progressive principles of sharing labor, equality of the sexes, things of that sort. Um, and Clapp felt right at home with him as a partner. He convinced Robinson that they should change the newspaper. And so it was reissued, relaunched as the pioneer with the motto, humanity first, everything else afterwards. And Clapp used this as a position to launch attacks on pretty much anybody that he didn't agree with, whether it was in the temperance movement or within the town itself. He got involved with local issues in Lynn, with local politics, and that actually got him into some trouble as well. And it's not so different 
from what happens today, you think of both on the kind of the progressive side and the conservative side, a lot of businesses will take a stand. So it, it, as you're looking back, it seems kind of strange, but it's also not wildly different from what's happening now. No, I think you're right that modern journalism has moved towards more of an objective model. Certainly at the time, there were more advocacy papers, but they are still around there and publications have a, a you know, pronounced lean to them one way or the other. American Spectator versus The Nation, for example, you kind of know what you're getting from the publication. So yeah, they there was, but there was a bit more of that at the time where they would literally take on a particular cause. And even in even in the INM though, there were a lot of articles from other papers where you could kind of tell the maybe the bent of the editor, but it wasn't explicitly about that particular topic. But Lynn was an early center of abolitionism. Like I said, it was a very progressive city at the time, and Clapp was one of the leaders of this. Many of the businessmen in the town either were lukewarm to the movement or at, at worst were afraid that their businesses would suffer if they upset folks in the South and they no longer would could get materials and so forth. And these were also targets for Clapp, and he attacked them unmercifully, seeing them as not, not as being sufficiently radical in their behavior. He did manage to cow everyone in the city, but there, by, by 1849, there were no more advocates of slavery of any note left in Lynn, but that didn't mean that everybody necessarily agreed with him, only that they didn't want to come under attack by him. Slavery, anti-slavery was not the only movement that he championed through his editorials. He also advocated for better wages for workers, better hours, and better conditions generally for the working man. He also found a form of socialism that was advanced by a man named Fourier to be appealing. Fourier was an influential thinker in France and one of the founders of utopian socialism. This is the time when you see a lot of experimental communities being set up like Brook Farm. People are trying to live and organize society in different ways that are more in keeping with their progressive ideals. Some of Fourier's social and moral views, which were really radical at the time, have become mainstream thinking in modern society. For example, Fourier is credited with having originated the word feminism in 1837, and Clapp was one of the earliest champions of the rights of women to vote. We discussed a little bit before we get started that it seemed like Clapp was kind of in search of a movement to join. You had mentioned that at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I, here you see it happening again because Clapp is now getting very involved not only with temperance, with women's rights, but also with the anti-slavery positions and movement that was going on. And within that movement, there was a, as with any kind of movement, there was a lot of dissension within the ranks over how best to go about implementing these changes that they want to see. And Clapp's very strong views made him a number of enemies in the movement. In particular, William Lloyd Garrison, who was famous to most Americans for his role in the anti-slavery movement, Clapp considered him insufficiently radical. Garrison believed that the Constitution was just a fatally flawed document because it upheld slavery, and that uh, at that point he advocated for dividing the Union up formally between slave states and free states. Clapp felt that, that abandoned the African Americans to their fate, the enslaved people to their fate, and they opposed chattel slavery unstintingly, but also continued to construe slavery more broadly as any institution which frustrated human aspiration for spontaneity and impeded the governance of God over man. Garrison, for his part, he loathed Clapp, noting in an 1846 letter that he affected magnanimity and viperous malice in about equal proportions. He described an encounter at a lecture where Clapp came up to him 
sat directly in front of the platform looking in a sinister, troubled manner, as Garrison described. Once or twice he had encountered some of his friends who complained, he complained to Garrison's friends about Garrison's treatment of Clap and expressed the admiration that he felt for him. So he's, he's all over the place. He's, you know, in writing, he's saying one thing and perhaps in person, it's a different story altogether when he's actually faced with the individual. Catherine Stover on, here on Nantucket used to refer to that as someone who was willing to make a snowball but wouldn't throw it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, we look back on history and, and well, when we look back on history, we remember William Lloyd Garrison. Many people don't remember Clapp. So I don't know if that says something right there. I think it, I think it does. I think it does. And I think it's in part because of the divisive nature of Clapp at this time. And also because he is, his later life was such a departure, there's not a continuous theme in some ways that you can connect it to, although his interest was still the same later in life in terms of the broader social movements that he was trying to see brought about, but he became very disillusioned with the way of going about it that he had been before. So, for example, he ended up in jail for libel. He was very upset about a possible miscarriage of justice in a local court in Lynn. And he used the Pioneer, his paper, to promote his private opinion of the judge. The judge did not like that and sued him for <laughs> libel. And Clapp ended up in jail where he continued to edit his paper from the cell. While there, it seems like he had a bit of a personal reckoning about his previous behavior and the way that he approached interacting with other people. He said it's been a very hard experience, but one which was much needed. And he wrote in what was described as a very magnanimous retraction of his own censures of the Liberty Party of Garrison. So he publicly came out and apologized for the way that he behaved, although true to form, Clav is back at it again not too long after that. Perhaps not as mean-spirited. So he had learned something, but he, it's hard for for him to the was the leopard to change his spot, so to speak. He seems to have a lack of impulse control. He, he is very impulsive. He's constantly <laughs> charging off. But he was also he did have uh, his admirers and as his adherents. When he came out of prison, his fellow townsmen received him in, with glorious rapture. They held the greatest parade that Lynn had ever seen up to that point in his honor. And then they formed a whip round to gather up some money to send him to Europe. Now, one might argue that that was just to get him out of town. They <laughs> wouldn't write something about them. But uh, he, they also, I think they saw him as a tireless advocate for what their cause was. At the beginning of his life, he kind of bops around. He's on a ship. He's down in Louisiana. He ends up in Lynn. How was that possible for him? Did he have money? Did he just not care what was going on that he was able to kind of, and this was at a time where there are no plane tickets and Ubers. It was quite difficult to get around. So how is he able to kind of reinvent himself over and over again? Well, uh, I think part of that is, well, first of all, Clapp, to my knowledge, rarely had any money at all, let alone very much of it. He was often living hand to mouth. He would do the, the copyist work here on Nantucket, even though he despised it because he had to pay the bill somehow. But I think he was able to both draw up support from well-wishers and admirers and also pool some of his own money that he would then use to take these trips. And, you know, at the time we're seeing, we're seeing the beginning of the railroad also at this point. So once you get to the mainland and to the larger cities, it's a lot easier to travel around 
than it would have been previously. Although to get to New Orleans, he would have had to take a ship to get there. So, but I don't know. I don't have a specific knowledge of how he funded those things, other than it seems like he has a history of not having any money, but getting support for people who then send him on to his next venture of whatever sort it is. And you said something interesting in terms of sending him on. I could see how people could love him and loathe him of they love that he can go out and say the things that they're not brave enough to say. They also very much recognize the danger or the risk in someone that's doing that and how it can come back and bite them. Mm. I think that's a good point. Uh, I think, yeah, he was a, it was a bit like, you know, wielding a sword. You want to make sure you are not holding it by the sharp end because he, he could be very cutting and abrasive to people, but also that could be used as an effective weapon against the people that you don't find to be particularly palatable. So I think, I think you're right. And he did circulate in a number of different movements and brought that attitude with him. So did upset a lot of people everywhere that he went, even as he was also doing a good job of advocating for that particular cause, but in his own way and on his own terms. I've heard that sometimes you need the extremism to kind of move the middle. And wait, hold on, let me think of it. What is the theory? It's the theory that you put something out there that's so extreme that it kind of moves the needle for everyone. So it's so extreme that people are like, oh, that would never happen. That's impossible. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But it goes so far that something people never would have considered suddenly seems not as crazy by comparison. Right. And the range of acceptable options has now shifted, right? Is this the Overton window that you're talking about? Yes, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Which has been happening in modern politics where you, you, yeah, you pull in one extreme and that shifts the entire center so that the new center, which would have been in one particular direction or the other previously now seems to be the norm again. Yes. And, yes. And I think, I think he was very much a part of that. He was very much a radical and supported radical behavior. There's a woman named Abby who was, her thing was getting thrown out of meetings. And I, I mean, even like ones that she agreed with, she was just, she was a disruptor. They were called come outers. They were trying to like wake up what they felt to be the moribund movement. And so they would cause a disturbance and Clapp was the only one who defended her, wanted to let this woman speak. Now they said she was being disruptive. How often have we heard men saying a woman is being emotional and disruptive, even if she's just making good points. So, you know, who knows how disruptive it actually was. And maybe he was just saying you need to listen to her, but there are repeated instances in the news of Abby being tossed for meetings because she just would not stop talking. But again, that energized the movement and it, it created discussion. And then, so I think to your point, it did, those extreme behaviors did much to move things. Certainly when Clapp was younger in the 1830s, for example, abolitionism was considered a radical extreme position to take. People might have been um, in favor of abolition in general, in the sense of, oh, let's send them back to Africa. There was that movement to send them to Liberia, but they didn't want to necessarily live next door to, to African-Americans as free citizens or believe that they were equal to them personally. And so there are all these different variations of the movement that were kind of all coalescing at the same time. 
regardless of whether it was to promote their cause or just to get clap out of their hair. In the summer of 1846, the Massachusetts Washingtonian Clubs sent Henry Clapp Jr. to London for the World Temperance Convention. For the next three years, he toured Europe going to peace conferences and wrote about his experiences for newspapers in the U.S. He happened to be in Paris during the coup that overthrew the monarchy and installed Louis Napoleon. Eventually, he settled in London for a while, where he mingled with the literary elite. And then in August of 1849, he attended the Second General Peace Conference in Paris. And although he'd been there before, it appears that this visit to the City of Lights, which was then in a bohemian reverie, was something of a revelation. Next time, we'll discuss what that revelation was and how it changed the trajectory of Clapp's life. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was hosted and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Reference Library Associate James Greeter for his knowledge and research. The opening announcement was voiced by Andrew Cromartie. Please check the show notes for more information and references. You can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have an idea for what we should talk about next, send us an email at jforest at nantucketathenaeum.org. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can find us online at nantucketathenaeum.org or search at Nantucket Athenaeum on Facebook and Instagram.